On this Easter Sunday, I'm much less interested in Easter literally, and I'm much more interested in Easter archetypally. Approaching Easter literally narrows our focus to just one Sunday morning, millennia ago, and the debate about what did or didn't happen. Approaching Easter archetypally widens our view radically to how patterns of death and rebirth repeat across time and in many different cultures. To begin to interrogate the more literal side of the spectrum, I want to begin by sharing with you some highlights by a book um, by Bart Ehrman, a distinguished professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. It's titled Armageddon, What the Bible Really Says About the End. If you're curious to learn more about the Christian tradition, Bart Ehrman is a very good place to start. He's written many incredible and accessible books. And then on the more archetypal side of the spectrum, I want to move to sharing with you a few uh, reflections inspired by a book titled When Time is Short, Finding Our Way in the Anthropocene. So the Anthropocene, as many of you know, is the kind of geologic era shaped deeply by we human beings. It's published by Beacon Press that is owned by our own Unitarian Universalist Association. So as we begin, I'm curious, how many of you are even interested in the question of what does the book of Revelation means? Who's at least curious about that question? How many of you could care less? <laughs> All right, fair enough. Here's the interesting thing. There's been many people on both sides of that, those camps since the book of Revelation was written. The book of Revelation has always had its fans. Otherwise, it never would have been included as one of the 27 books uh, that we now call the New Testament. But there have also always been Revelation detractors, including among early Christians. Early opponents of Revelation argued that its author, John of Patmos, was not one of the original apostles of Jesus. And even more importantly, that his teachings about the future were wildly out of alignment with what Jesus had actually taught. There have been many critics of Revelation over the years. I'll give you just two representative ones. First, let's consider an example from early Christianity. In the third century, a prominent bishop of Alexandria, which was an important position at that time, he wrote that some of our predecessors rejected the book of Revelation and pulled it entirely to pieces, criticizing it chapter by chapter, pronouncing it unintelligible, and illogical, and the title false. They say it is not a revelation at all, since it is heavily veiled by its thick curtain of incomprehensibility. <laughs> They're not wrong. <laughs> so, uh, uh, for a second example, let's fast forward to the Reformation, when in the 1500s, when Martin Luther translated the Bible into the vernacular from Latin into his common tongue of German, uh, he actually relegated the book of Revelation to an appendix because he was skeptical that it actually um, belonged in the main part of the Bible. He didn't really think it was necessarily worthy to be in the New Testament canon. So that those critics of Revelation were on to something. Uh, have you ever heard someone talk about the so-called Old Testament God of wrath and the New Testament God of love? 
That's a stereotype that's done a whole lot of harm over the years. If you closely read the Jewish and Christian scriptures, you'll start to notice there's actually a lot of love and mercy and compassion and forgiveness in the Hebrew Bible. And if we limit ourselves in the Christian scriptures to just the book of Revelation alone, the overwhelming emphasis on that book is the wrath and vengeance of God. Indeed, if you go home and read the book of Revelation, not necessarily the best use of your time, uh, the love of God, the love of God for anything or for anyone is never mentioned in the book of Revelation. You will not find it once. Irrespective of our interest or disinterest in the book of Revelation today as 21st century Unitarian Universalists, the book of Revelation continues to be of significant influence on many theologically conservative Christians and their major impacts on our world as a result. So I think it's something we should at least be somewhat conversant with. One of the biggest concerns is that many people who believe that Revelation teaches that Jesus is returning soon think that that means you don't have to worry about climate change. If God's plan is to destroy the planet and magically create a new earth, why make sacrifices to save this planet in its current form? Here's an example of what I'm talking about. Um, you can look at, there are lots of these examples. I'll give you just one. This is from a popular megachurch pastor. I will not name names. It's not necessary or helpful. Uh, this is from a sermon preached to thousands of listeners. This is a disposable planet, a disposable universe. This planet is a theater through which God can put himself on full display. And when he is through with this purpose, he can lay it to waste and then create a better one in an instant. Turns out that's not how physics works, but but anyway, I don't bring this up to unnecessarily disparage people's beliefs. That's not something that I think is necessarily worth doing, but I want to be honest, this all feels quite personal to me, as it may to some of you, and not just because climate change impacts all of us. Growing up Southern Baptist in South Carolina, I experienced firsthand some of the contemporary fixation on the biblical book of Revelation and some of the fear-mongering that goes around it. The most notable example that I can give you is that in 19... I can talk about some uh, pretty scary videos we had to watch, but let's let's not get into that. The most notable example is in 1993, when I was 15 years old, my congregation's youth group attended a weekend-long conference that was all about how to interpret the book of Revelation. Uh, we were given this book. I know, it's, I know. Pack your bags. Jesus is coming. And you can see people kind of being lifted up, being raptured, right? I mean, today, I mean, this title seems comic on its face, right? This is a real book. You can buy it on Amazon right now. I don't recommend wasting your money that way. I mean, this title, it honestly feels like this is a Saturday Night Live skit. Like, it, like it's almost like it's satirizing itself. But I, I really want to underscore this book was written with dead seriousness. I mean, like just not ironic at all in its intent. We were being taught to interpret the book of Revelation as, it's, as if its verses were literally coming true very soon in our own lifetime, and this is not an idiosyncratic event, nor was the congregation that I grew in like one of the most extreme examples. There are much more extreme examples of, of sort of doubling or tripling down on Revelation. 
Um, some of you remember more than two decades earlier, in 1970, Hal Lindsey published a book titled The Late Great Planet Earth. How many people remember this, this book? This book was a big deal. It became something of a second Bible for many evangelical Christians. In the 1970s, this book was the single best-selling book of nonfiction, using the word nonfiction very loosely. Millions of copies were being sold well into the 1980s and into the 1990s. Disturbingly, we know that President Reagan, as well as many members of his cabinet, including his Secretary of Defense, believed that bombs might really fly because of how Hal Lindsey was teaching them to read the book of Revelation. I mean, this is influencing geopolitics at the highest possible level. But here's the thing. Prior to modern times, the book of Revelation was almost never read as about predicting the near future. Instead, it was understood to be what it actually is, a letter written by someone who lived in the first century addressing other people who lived in the first century with a message he thought they needed to learn about the first century. We don't have time to go chapter by chapter through the book of Revelation. If you're interested in that, that's fine. Ehrman's new book, Armageddon, is a, is a great resource for that. Uh, but for now, I'll limit myself to sharing just one egregious example of how the book of Revelation has been misinterpreted. Today, the single word most closely associated with the book of Revelation is probably rapture. It's this belief, like you saw on the cover, that end of, the end of time, true Christians will be lifted up, uh, raptured, if you will, to meet Jesus. Perhaps you remember, th this was more like a few years ago, but do you remember the kind of rapture-inspired bumper stickers? You know, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned, and then that inspired a whole slew of, in case of rapture, can I have your car? You know, like, uh, some of you are... I saw these all over South Carolina. I don't, I don't know what was happening in Maryland or where you were living, but... Um, but it turns out the word rapture doesn't appear in the Bible, not once. Moreover, there's nothing in the book of Revelation about followers of Jesus being lifted up to safety before the earth is destroyed. The whole idea of a rapture comes from a misreading, not of Revelation, but actually of a passage in 1 Thessalonians. And but I need to still say, a whole lot of people have been reading the Bible incredibly closely for a very, very long time. But no one had ever understood the Bible, even in 1 Thessalonians, as predicting anything rapture-like prior to this guy named John Nelson Darby, who lived in the 1800s, not the first century. Like, it took 1,800 years, and apparently everyone had missed it except for this guy, John Nelson Darby. 200 years ago. But since then, this veritable cottage industry has sprung, has sprung up around Darby's misreading. In recent years, the Left Behind novels sold more than 80 million copies. This is a very influential worldview, the latest installment of sort of cashing in on this biblical misinterpretation. Now, it's true that the original author of Revelation thought that the world was ending, but he thought it was happening soon, like in his own lifetime. But here we are more than 2,000 years later. So clearly he was wrong. So why can't we just admit that and move on with our lives? One problem, I think, is actually narcissism. We need to be honest that it is incredibly narcissistic to think that the whole universe of two trillion galaxies boils down to what happens on our planet, the third rock from the sun. 
and that it's all coming to a culmination in our lifetimes, and that the only people that will be saved are a sort of narrow band of, of one religion. As the ancient Greeks taught us long ago, it's not about you, Narcissus. <laughs> but the more interesting, if also troubling insight at play here about human nature is actually more complicated than narcissistic personality disorder. One might guess that when a prediction very publicly made about the end of the world, when that fails to come true, you might think that true believers would reevaluate their worldview. Some of you will know the, the famous Philip K. Dick line, he's a science fiction writer. He said that reality is what, you know, is what continues to be true whether you believe in it or not, right? That, that's what reality is. It doesn't, it doesn't go away when you stop believing in it. And that does happen when apocalyptic predictions stop being true. Some people do admit they were wrong and do return to normal life. But in another subset of people, social psychologists have shown again and again that frustrated expectations can ironically lead to renewed fervor. The most famous study of this is a book titled When Prophecy Fails. Uh, I suspect most of you have heard the term um, cognitive dissonance. It comes from this book. It comes from a guy, a psychologist named Leon Festinger. When it's too psychologically traumatic for we human beings to admit that we were wrong, we tend to instead fabricate a reason why we weren't really wrong. The most famous regarding religious predictions is, oh, we must have done the math incorrectly. And then you just come up with a new date and you reset the doomsday clock. Groups such as religious cults that are caught up in cognitive dissonance, they tend to become even more evangelistic than before because every new convert helps counterbalance the anxiety that we might be wrong. We might've put our faith in the wrong thing. So if we just convince more people, that makes us feel better and less anxious. Here's the actual truth to the best of my knowledge. It's a quote adapted from the historical Jesus scholar on John Dominic Crossan from his powerful book titled God and Empire. It relates to the dynamic we explored earlier of taking Easter not literally, but archetypally. And I think what Crossan's talking about here is very much in alignment with what liberal and progressive Christians have been teaching and showing us um, for a long time that's kind of alternative to conservative Christianity. Crossan wrote, the second coming of Christ is not an event we should expect to happen soon, violently, or literally. It's not happening soon, it's not happening violently, and it's not happening literally. The second coming is what will happen when we admit that the first coming was the only coming and start to cooperate with its divine presence. We already killed Jesus, right? So we, we, we just get to decide when are we going to actually do the things that he showed us how to do, how to be more loving and compassionate and forgiving and merciful. In other words, we are the ones we've been waiting for. Not Jesus to return. We are the ones we've been waiting for. We're not going to get a new heaven and a new earth. We need to admit we're already living on a paradise planet. We just need to look outside to see this breathtakingly beautiful earth and to join together to protect it for ourselves, for our children, for our grandchildren, and all future generations. So where do we go from here? Well, Easter Sunday is all about this archetypal journey from crucifixion, from this kind of death-dealing way of living, to resurrection, a more life-giving way of being in the world, moving from unjust end to unexpected rebirth 
from death to new life. And we do Eastern religion a disservice if we allow the debate to be framed exclusively in terms of what did or didn't happen 2,000 years ago. Instead, our invitation is to discern how is Easter archetypally playing out in our own lives, in our own world today? Where might we unexpectedly find resurrection, new life, rebirth? One temptation, very much understandable, would be just to dismiss religion altogether. But let me, let me share with you a famous quote from Ecological Theology. It's from an influential 1967 essay titled, The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis. It outlines some of the stuff we've been looking at already. It says this, if religion has gotten us into this mess, it may be that we need religion to get us out of it, but a better religion. Since the roots of our trouble are so largely religious, the remedy must also be essentially religious, whether we call it that or not. We need to rethink and refill our nature and destiny. That's part of what I had in mind when I titled this sermon, Rereading the Bible as Earthlings in Ecological Interdependence. So what might that look like to reconsider religion, not as not seeing ourselves as these uniquely special creations who have no long-term need for this su supposedly disposable planet, but instead as earthlings in ecological interdependence with all other sentient beings, as well as even the planet Earth itself? Earlier, we considered the cover of Hal Lindsey's uh, best-selling book, The Late Great Planet Earth. Published in 1970, Lindsey invites us to imagine this horrific future. Horrific to me. It's, it's interesting to me and horrifying to me how many people think this is good news. Imagine this, to me, horrific future that no matter what we humans do, a wrathful God is coming to destroy the Earth apocalyptically. But keep in mind, what else happened in 1970? in this very month. Well, no, Earth Day, right, or slide before. Uh, the same year that Lindsay published The Late Great Planet Earth was also the first Earth Day in April 1970. And there are ways in which Lindsay's book is this attempt to under, he doesn't talk about it explicitly, but this is an attempt to undermine the burgeoning environmental movement. He was trying to stoke our apocalyptic imaginations and keep us divided from one another. In contrast, the goal of the first Earth Day was to awaken our collective environmental consciousness and bring us together across our differences to save ourselves and to save this planet. In 1967 is when we got the first color images of our planet taken from a satellite. These images really helped awaken the uh, environmental movement. The next year in 68, I wonder how many of you remember that this image graced the cover of the first issue of the Whole Earth Catalog. Does anybody remember that coming out? All right, all right. In parallel to how the late great planet Earth became something of a second Bible for many evangelical Christians, Steve Jobs, the inventor of Apple, famously called the Whole Earth Catalog the Bible of my generation. And if you go back and read the introduction to that first issue of the Whole Earth Catalog, the editor, Stuart Brand, really interesting dude, that would be a whole other sermon. Uh, Stuart Brand wrote something in the introduction, very interesting, that resonates with this question we've been exploring of what it might mean to reconsider religion as earthlings in ecological interdependence. He wrote, we are as gods, and we might as well get used to it. That's that Anthropocene thing, like we humans really have the power to change things, even to blow things up after we invented the atomic bomb. 
So that whole thing, we are gods, that sounds pretty religious to me, right? Uh, We humans have become quite powerful. Are we going to use that power to destroy the earth or to save ourselves and the earth along with it? Along these lines, I do think we need something of a religious or spiritual conversion. If we're going to shift ourselves out of narcissism, out of this kind of egocentric way of, that is all about exploiting and dominating and might makes right, into a more ecological perspective in which we realize that we're always already interdependent with everything, what our UU seventh principle calls the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. I do think this sort of shift from egocentrism to ecological consciousness will, if we ever get to it fully, it will look and feel like the resurrection. There's so much more to say about all this, but for now, in the spirit of this sort of hoped-for rebirth into a more ecological way of being together, I'll end by inviting you to hear selections from a poem by Fred Lamont. It's titled, My Ancestry DNA Results. It invites us to ponder just how deeply we all are related, again, back to that interdependent web of all existence. It goes like this. My ancestry DNA results came in. And just as I suspected, my great-great-grandfather was a monarch butterfly. (laughs) Much of who I am is still wiggling under a stone. I'm part lava, but part hummingbird, too. There is dinosaur, dinosaur tar in my bone marrow. Genghis Khan is my fourth cousin, but I didn't get his dimples. My uncle is a mastodon. 13.7 billion years ago, I swirled in golden dust. More recently, say 60,000 BC, I walked on hairy paws across a land bridge from Sweden to Botswana. I am the love child of the sun and the moon. I can no longer hide my heritage of raindrops and cougar scat. I am made of your grandmother's tears. Just admit it. You have wings, vast and golden, like mine, like mine. You have sweat, black and salty, like mine, like mine. You have secrets, silently singing in your blood, like mine, like mine. Don't pretend that earth is not one family. Don't pretend that we never hung from the same branch. Don't pretend that we don't ripen each other's breath. Don't pretend that we didn't come here to forgive. In that spirit of looking for rebirth, for new hope, for how we might practice resurrection together. Let's rise and body your spirit. Let's sing together hymn 61. Lo, the earth awakens again. <laughs>